Hello, and thanks for joining us for this February edition of Stratfor Talks, the monthly podcast where we take you deep into discussions on geopolitical and security affairs. I'm Marla Moore. And I'm Ben Sheen, and we're your hosts for the podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking with one of our military analysts, Omar Lemrani, about tensions in the East and South China Seas. And in our second segment, we'll be kicking off a multi-part discussion to celebrate Stratfor's 20th year in business, called 20 Ways the World Has Changed in 20 Years. Security expert Fred Burton will be joining us then to talk about five ways the world was impacted by the 9-11 attacks. So be sure to stay tuned for that part of the podcast, since we'll be inviting your suggestions and ideas for that discussion as well. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us by email at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And with that, on with the show. The Chinese military has been increasingly active in the East and South China Seas, a region where the maritime interests of no fewer than nine countries overlap with each other. Beijing's territorial claims overlap with those of several other neighboring states, including several countries that are U.S. allies. This is a region where the potential for conflict is always present and where tensions will continue to be felt for quite some time. Understanding China's overall military strategy is the key to understanding the region. And in many ways, Beijing is playing a subtle game. And now, one of Stratfor's military analysts, Omar Lamrani, joins us to explain and put it all in perspective. Omar, I suppose a good place to start initially is looking at the geography of the South China Seas. Can you tell us what we're actually looking at? What are the countries involved in the region? China has a territorial dispute in the China, South China Sea with multiple nations. Um, it has what it's called the uh, often commonly called the Nine Dash Line um, across uh, the South China Sea, which kind of is looks like a cow's tongue. Um, and um, within that area, they have disputes with the Philippines, have disputes with Brunei, Malaysia, Taiwan, and uh, Vietnam. And um, there are two key archipelagos in that, in that area, which are often in dispute. There's the Paracel Islands between Vietnam and China. And then there's the uh, Spratly Islands, where all the other countries, bar Vietnam, are involved in as well. And in this area, um, there's been increasing buildup of the uh, islands themselves. So what we have seen over the last year is that the Chinese have accelerated the programs of uh, reclaim, reclaiming the, uh, the reefs and building up them up into artificial islands of sorts, um, placing lighthouses, uh, airfields, um, all kinds of military infrastructure on those islands to make them more viable as permanent settlements for both its uh, forces, as well as to make a claim of territorial control over the South China Sea. In the East China Sea, we have, of course, China has a claim over the entire Taiwan, which is considered a breakaway region. And then, of course, we also have a dispute with Japan over the Senkaku Islands. Many of these disputes seem almost silly when you really take a look at what's going on in the geography. I mean, some of these islands are like rocks Mm -hmm. sticking up out of the ocean. Why are they so important to China and to the other other states that lay claim to them? I mean, they have battles over what you call them and, and not light exchanges when you use the wrong name. Why are they why do they take this uh, particularly um, aggressive stance over a, a bunch of rocks? Uh, there's two parts to that to that uh, question that needs to be answered. Uh, the first one is the uh, strategic location of of this, these areas and these disputes. Um, the South China Sea, for instance, is um, is a vital corridor for shipping. That China's uh, as growing economic powers increasingly relying relying on foreign exports and imports is is really keen on maintaining. Uh, uh, a position of strength in, in that region. But then when you dive down to the islands or rocks themselves, it can seem silly, but it, the the um, the actual importance of these places is located within um, what we can see as the language of international law. I mean, if it is an island, then you have the economic exclusive zone behind it. Uh, you can uh, harvest the resources. You have a right to those resources um, that surround that rock. It's not itself. It's not just the rock or the island itself. It's uh, the resources in in the sea around it, um, which could include fisheries, could include uh, oil and gas. The South China, South China Sea is considered to be uh, potentially very high in hydrocarbon resources. Um, and then, of, of course, the ability to position forces on those places and, and extend that control over the South China Sea. Uh, in the East China Sea, Taiwan is, is considered a vital component of the Chinese nation that has to be restored. Um, it, is, um, it is also uh, a key blocking position on the first island chain that China is trying to break through uh, out into the 
the Pacific. Uh, the Senkaku is, is, is more akin to the South China Sea disputes where you have uh, maritime resources and, and fisheries involved there. Um, and of course, there is that historical dispute between Japan and China that feeds into um, these these little rocks or islands. And, and all of a sudden, this becomes much more than just a question of resources and, or, or territory. And it becomes a question of national national pride to make, to restore those those uh, the, that territory that has been, uh, from Beijing's perspective, taken away from them by colonial powers over the last 200 years. Why is this becoming an issue now, or should I say recently? Because for a long time, uh, China didn't really put much emphasis on it, on its naval and maritime forces. What really caused this change? That's a very good question, Ben. It's, it's not that China's view on the importance of these locations has necessarily changed. It's the question of uh, capability and ability. So China, for the last, before, before the 1990s, essentially, uh, was a largely um, land-focused power. It did not have the economic power to build up a significant fleet nor an air force. It was, hard, it was largely focused on preventing um, advances from the north against from Russia. It was very much internal-looking. With the reforms that occurred over the 1990s and, and since the beginning of the 21st century, we have seen a rising Chinese power. Its econo- economy has grown rapidly, enabling its, uh, enabling Beijing to build a significant fleet. And this has also tied into its exports and imports. Uh, as the Chinese economy becomes more global, they're looking outwards rather than inwards. And all this feeds into looking at their near seas, uh, the South China Sea and the East China Sea, and making sure that they do have a strong claim on those that, that area and those, those seize in that territory with their growing military power. When you really look at the way that China's economy has developed, and I think you just touched on this point a bit, you know, coming back to Deng Xiaoping and economic reform and opening and moving all of the the centers of growth were really moved to the eastern coast of China rather than the interior. So there's no real buffer region. If these areas were to come under attack, China would be very vulnerable uh, from that eastern coast. And it's helpful if you're looking at a map of this region, but there are island chains and you look at, you know, the Indonesian Malaysian landmass and some of the archipelagos around it. It really is barrier islands jutting out into the sea. And the east and South China Seas are essentially China's backyard. Absolutely, especially at this point where, as you correctly identified, the Chinese, the center of Chinese economic power right now is very much on the coast. They're trying to push it more to the hinterland, more towards the uh, west, but it still is and will remain for a long time in the coast. And when they look towards the towards the seas, what they're looking at is both economic opportunity, potential growth uh, outwards as as a as a global power, but also as um, fear as a defensive means. Like when they look towards the first island chain. They see a potential blocking position for their for their outwards growth, but also potentially a launching pad in a war against them. So they are very much concerned over over that area. And as they look towards these waters, to to them, it's it's very much a defense as well as an offense question. They have to push outwards, but it's also about protecting themselves from fur, from further incursions, as such um, as the ones that happened during the 1800s um, or or the wars uh, against Japan. Well, I would think that the United States doesn't view the situation all that differently as a rival military power. I mean, we would be looking as Americans more or less at those same vulnerabilities. Yes, uh, the United States uh, as the status quo power, the power that is the global hegemon in, in, in many ways. And, and China is the rising power. So obviously, the United States um, is going to be very concerned over Chinese attempts at changing the map of sorts. Um, and also, we have to keep in mind that there is multiple allies for the United States within this region. So as they look towards China, uh, they, they, they are making an effort to maintain the first island chain as a blocking position of sorts, even if they are not officially going out there and making such claims. It's just a natural outgrowth of power, power dynamics. So, Omar, we probably don't have the time even in a podcast to discuss China militarily and what it's doing to, to build up its forces and, and the threat that it sees in the United States. But certainly there's an, an acknowledgement amongst U.S. military planners that, that, that China is, is, is taking a lot of steps to actually become credible militarily in the region. And clearly China has played it smart. They've looked uh, a lot of the great seafaring nations, seen how they've done business, and actually they're trying to take a lot of that away when it comes to their own military planning. Now, what do you understand by sort of the Asian pivot that actually the U.S. is trying to administer at the moment? And also, how is the U.S. relying on its allies in the region to really sort of counter China and its growth? 
Yes, uh, the United States is recognizing that China's uh, and and the region, East Asia as a whole, is of incredible importance in the future. Um, and and now and in the future, substantial percentage of the global population resides in that area. Shipping, economic power, etc. They have very strong allies, historical allies in the region. And the United States is very concerned over a change in that status quo. So uh, ultimately, the United States is, is a power that is a Pacific power, but it's also a power that's relatively farther away from this region than China. Uh, there is the tyranny of distance that we often uh, discuss, which is uh, the further you are away from from a center of disputes, the less uh, opportunities or leverage uh, that you can project uh, and force that you can project there. So. For the United States to avoid uh, committing itself too much to the region, they have to rely on their allies. Um, and they cannot fight, uh, they cannot be a global policeman in every sense of the word. Um, having allies in the region is very important. But having those allies also means that you have to ensure that those allies stay on your side and do not uh, defect to a rising power that is, in this, in this case, uh, we can consider to be China. So in that sense, the U.S. is very um, invested in showing that they are still very much involved in this region, that there is this pivot to Asia, that they will address uh, their allies' concern that they are not going to retreat from, from this region as China rises. Uh, and this will be shown through economic uh, means, uh, through trade agreements with, with the powers in, in the region, uh, greater uh, integration with them, uh, through military means, through the stationing of increasing uh, rotational forces in the area and maritime power, um, as well as diplomatic engagements that will stay and uh, stay there and be sustained over a longer period of time. As we're talking about all of this, uh, I mean, the U.S. has drawn down forces. We have gone through uh, sequestration, downsizing our military forces. There are a number of challenges for the U.S. military. And as part of that, as you're mentioning, the allies are very important. We used to have, uh, we, we called it a lily pad strategy, which had to do with the basing of forces. And now it's more of an outsourcing strategy, so to speak. But with all of that in mind, as been said in the intro, China is doing something that's rather subtle in terms terms of its own military strategy. And can you speak a little bit to what that is and the the main pillars and area access denial strategy, essentially, that is underway? So two parts again to this to this answer. Uh, the first part, I really do want to um, raise the points uh, before we go into A to AD, the points of uh, the Chinese use of their maritime militia, which we have seen quite a lot often in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, which is that the Chinese, um, they, they, they do have to be subtle in their approach to this region. They can't just send their naval forces um, into the seas of other nations or, or disputed territory. So what they're using increasingly is relying on, on uh, essentially fish fishing fleets that have been co-opted into the military or, or that can be co-opted in, into, their, um, into their military power and using these to consistently uh, intrude in or harass other navies or coast guards and or other uh, navies, um, other countries' fishing fleets and, and just push into their, uh, into their ter- territories. And that way, there's this consistent reminder that China's claim is there, that China is, is um, that, that that region is belonging to China and that they will uh, protect us and if the response from the other side is through use of naval warships, that that becomes then uh, an escalation that other countries would would be very hesitant to to use. Uh, so that that being one component that um, I want to put in there. The other one being directly related to. Um, military power, which is the uh, what was often called uh, anti-access area denial. Um, and that is, we have to go back a little bit to the 1980s uh, to set the stage for that, which is um, China had the military doctrine of the People's War in the 1980s, which is essentially very land-focused, uh, using masses of uh, using the population and the mass of the population to counter any invasion of China proper. Uh, this doctrine was completely outmoded, and the Chinese recognized it themselves when they saw what happened during the first Gulf War, when uh, U.S. technological supremacy uh, completely dismantled the Iraqi army, um, regardless of how big the Iraqi army was at the time. And they realized that they had no chance, especially if we're talking about a sphere of maritime and air spheres uh, of, of countering the United States. Um, and so as they looked to Taiwan, and especially during the 1996, 1995-1996 Taiwan crisis, 
when they tried to assert their dominance over Taiwan and the U.S. sailed to carry battle groups through the Taiwan Strait and they had no counter to that whatsoever. They realized that technologically they were so far behind the United States and they had to address that. So what they did was they gradually adopted this anti-access area denial doctrine, which essentially grabs an asymmetric approach to Chinese, uh, to U.S. military dominance, focusing on missiles, on submarines, on uh, on cruising, uh, on uh, surface-to-air missiles, um, on hit-and-run str- hit tactics, on various different ways to uh, to address the U.S. threat um, asymmetrically, and and if if not deter, then it defeats or push back. Um, the U.S. intervention in its uh, in its regional seas. So, for instance, if the U.S. has a crisis with Taiwan and they engage in battle against Taiwan, they want to put in place a system, a layered defensive system, where the U.S. will be very concerned over sustaining heavy casualties if they do interfere, uh, and thus uh, keeping the U.S. away from from the crisis. And if they do interfere, to delay them and inflict significant casualties until they can achieve their military goals. And that, for me, seems really intriguing, which is China's specific military calculus. And again, they, they've played it very well. They understand that, that technologically they are not as advanced as they'd like to be, but they're planning on, on making advancements each year, so they're definitely looking forward. But what is most interesting to me is the fact that they've adopted this, this full-spectrum approach. So as well as developing their, their sort of hard physical military capability, they're also plowing a lot of resources into, uh, into the cyber realm as well. We know they're very good at carrying out cyber espionage, and they've identified a key vulnerability in the US, which is the fact that the United States has a very network-centric approach to military operations. And they realize that actually they could potentially deal a crippling blow to the US military by disabling its uh, its C4 ISR capability. That's actually really good points, Ben, that um, I didn't think specifically mention, but there's definitely the cyber realm and the uh, the space realm as well, which is um, China recognizes that the United States is, is very military dominant. Uh, through cyber warfare, they can, um, first of all, um, counter that gap a little bit by stealing American technology, in effect, and using that within their military, um, posing any symmetric threats through through cyber by potentially hacking into U.S. power infrastructure, um, just delaying them overall. But there's also the space factor, which is that the U.S. is extremely reliant on space, especially in uh, force projection battles. So given that the United States has to communicate over very long distances, has to understand what's going on over very long distances, satellites infrastructure becomes indispensable. Uh, the, Taiwan, the Chinese, uh, though they are increasingly reliant on space, are not as reliant because, well, number one, they're not as advanced. But number two, they're fighting within their backyard. Uh, they don't need a satellite to, to uh, project information, communications, understand what's going on in the other side of the globe as much. And therefore, uh, they are increasingly building up their anti-satellite uh, weaponry, which could be construed as part of this uh, doctrine, in order to threaten the United States and make sure that they could attack them in a, in a, in a weak spot. Um, and, and, and this is just another component of their asymmetric approach. You know, we don't normally think of it in that way, but when you consider that Cyber is part of the battle space now and and will continue to be so. I mean, we all have this term information dominance, which is just as much a doctrine for the U.S. military as it is for the Chinese. But Chinese fighting on near lines and with cyber, the United States will be fighting on extended lines. Disrupting cyber is essential for the Chinese in that sense. And from the U.S. point of view, I mean, they, they are increasingly recognize this and recognizing this, and we we will see um, greater spending on cyber defense, uh, cyber defense over the next uh, years to come. Uh, that is that is something that is increasingly going to be part of uh, not only the U.S. and Chinese militaries, but all militaries going forward. One of the things that I'm I'm curious about when we talk about um, this counter intervention strategy or A2AD, as it's also known. China is declaring these zones of influence, of territoriality, um, it's air defense identification zone, but it strikes me that they may not be working all that well at present. I mean, at least the United States likes to send its airplanes and its its missile destroyers on, on patrol through these zones, almost just to say, because we can. Yeah, and uh, that's true. It's, um, it's, it's a way for China to assert uh, dominance over an area, but... 
you cannot really assert that dominance if you don't have something to back it. And as the United States has shown, both in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, they do not recognize the, these zones, and they will fly through them. They will sail uh, under them. And there's really not much that China can do about it. Having said that, we also uh, need to understand the relevance of the uh, ADIZ or air uh, identification zones. Japan has a lot of those. The Philippines has a lot of those. All, most nations actually, and the United States including, do set up those zones. It's just that China has done it in a in a manner that many could would construe to be a uh, rather um, controversial, uh, not really notifying other nations, setting them up in zones that are highly disputed. Um, and, and so that's that's really brought it to the fore. Uh, but yeah, they, they are not declaring these zones really does not change the bottom line. It does not it's, it's a matter of asserting that, yes, this is an area that is of interest of me to me. This is an area that I will defend. This is an area that, uh, that I look to restore my authority over. Uh, but in reality, we have not really seen China um, effectively enforce those songs. In some ways, it seems like America is playing China at its own game, because any attempt to resolve grievances with China in the permanent court of arbitration at The Hague has been met on, you know, with no response from China. Beijing simply refuses to participate in any of the cases. So it almost seems like the US is saying, well, okay, if you want to stonewall, then we can do the same thing too. We're not going to recognize your territorial claims. And what, what can you do about it? But the U.S. is very careful to, uh, to, to maintain a very distinct line. For instance, if we go to the South China Sea, um, they, do, they are not saying that they are taking a specific side on uh, the claims of those islands. Uh, for instance, they're not saying that, yes, we back the Philippines in its claim over these islands over the Chinese, uh, specifically in the Spratly Islands. Uh, what they are saying is there is a certain law, maritime law, Convention of the Seas, that they will abide by and that other nations should abide by. So what they dispute China on is grabbing these, these essentially these reefs that are not really islands and acting as if they are islands with the, with the privileges that comes with that. And the U.S. is sailing through those and saying, no, we are not, uh, we do not see these as islands. We do not see um, these these areas as something that we need to abide by. We will sail through the 12 uh, nautical mile zone. And at the same time, they are saying that they will do the same for the islands that are claimed uh, by the Philippines and by Vietnam. Uh, th- that way, they, they are trying to maintain a very clear message that it is the respect for the convention, which ironically the U.S. Congress has yet to ratify, uh, that they are uh, focused on and not necessarily taking sides on which side um, is actually right in its territorial claims. So, Omar, to change tack slightly, to what degree do you think China views a remilitarizing Japan as a credible threat in the region? I think it's extremely concerned over Japan. Uh, Japan is normalizing military power. There's a very, very big history there between China and Japan. Japan is increasingly exploring, potentially going into the South China Sea, which China considers as a, as a grave um, escalation. Uh, they, of course, have that dispute over the Senkakus. There's also another aspect which ties, di- ties directly into counter-intervention, which is this idea that they would use missiles to knock out U.S. bases around Taiwan, if there is a war with Taiwan. The problem is there's a lot of U.S. bases in Japan. And if the, if the Chinese engage with the, with, the, with the Americans, then they would uh, bring Japan into the, into the conflict as well. And that, that would mean that Japan and the United States and Taiwan in a war against China over the Taiwan Straits, and that would not work out too well for China. So in a sense, Japan comes into a lot of these questions, and Japan is, is a power that's even more than the United States invested in this region because they are in this region. And so beyond uh, just how long the United States can maintain a presence here, uh, Japan is is has and would probably be increasingly relied on by by the United States to uh, to maintain um, a sort of one of its primary allies uh, as as one of its primary allies uh, a more dominant uh, role in in the East China Sea and the South China Sea and uh, China sees that as as potentially a very very uh, grave threat for their interests given their history and all the other factors. So, Omar, we've talked a lot about what the Chinese are actually doing to dominate the region and counter the US and other nations there. But obviously, the United States is not just going to sit there and let this happen. What are the US actually doing to to challenge China's attempts to uh, conduct A2AD in the region? From the U.S. perspective, that's very true. They look at uh, the Chinese and their actions and the uh, setting up of the military doctrine, the A2AD doctrine, uh, and, and uh, they're, they're being very proactive in the response. On the more uh, strategic level, they are uh, doing the uh, pivot to Asia, which we discussed previously. 
the, on the more military level, they're adopting their own strategy to counter A280. Uh, there's this concept that they're discussing and, and setting into motion called the air-sea battle. Um, the air-sea battle recognizes that there will be much more difficult, at least initially, to penetrate into that uh, zone covered by, two, by A280. So it's looking into creating a strategy by which there is, number one, greater coordination between naval and air assets, uh, number two, uh, greater standoff uh, weaponry, which by that I mean weapons that you can fire beyond A2AD that can um, strike Chinese uh, military targets without putting your own forces into the line. Uh, one of the uh, weapons, that's, uh, weapons that could be potentially very important in this is the prompt global strike concept, which is essentially developing weapons, um, perhaps through hypersonics, that would be enable the United States to launch uh, its missiles from extremely long distances at extremely fast speed um, and be able to penetrate the Chinese defenses that way, eventually building up to a capable response that brings them inside uh, the, uh, the disputed zone. Uh, the problem that the United States is grappling with is there's there's a few problems the United States is grappling with when they look at air sea battle. The first is a question of escalation, which is in many of these, um, for instance, France Global Strike, uh, when you strike at the Chinese, uh, the, there's an understanding that in an active battle, you might strike targets within China's, China's mainland and not just outside China's mainland, especially if the missiles that China is shooting are from its mainland. That raises questions over China's nuclear inventory. Uh, you can imagine that the United States would not react too kindly to Chinese missiles hitting the United States. Uh, so in that sense, there's, an, there's a growing, a growing course that's um, basically arguing that that is a very dangerous escalation from the United States that might trigger Chinese re, re, uh, retaliation with uh, on the United States proper, which might be misconstrued as a nuclear strike or something along those lines, and essentially just taking the fight very quickly uh, into the nuclear realm. Uh, the other aspect of that is prompt global strike. Also, a lot of it's um, is being explored through uh, through ballistic missiles, inter uh, essentially intercontinental ballistic missiles, obviously with the same flight profile as an intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead, and, and thus that raises questions of how is China going to understand whether that's a nuclear strike that's incoming or a conventional strike that's incoming. So essentially, without going too much into the uh, into the weeds here, there there are a lot of complications that arise with with both strategies as the U.S. tries to counter this. Uh, but essentially, the U.S. is looking at the military doc at, at at revising its own military doctrine, but it's also looking at its allies, especially Japan. Um, to reinforce its position as it looks towards countering China's rise, as well as its adoption of the A2AD doctrine. So the question that I have is, we've looked at all of the overlapping claims in this region. We know that the potential for conflict is always there. I mean, just fishing vessels coming into contact with each other and somebody gets upset. It's been true for years. But because the activity is increasing so much and because the, the stakes for China are as high as they actually are in this, what do you see uh, looking out over the next year or so? I mean, we've said that uh, the U.S. and China both will do everything they can not to escalate things, but that neither of them are likely to back down, do you really see a, a conflict coming? A miscalculation is always possible. And that is a big concern here, is as uh, there are plenty of ships revolving around each other as there's aircrafts flying very close to each other. Um, a miscalculation is always possible, an accident that can uh, quickly escalate. That is the big concern here. But as to deliberate um, deliberate engagements of, of hostilities, I think at this point, all sides recognize that they have a tremendous amount to lose uh, economically, militarily, in all possible manners. So there is a desire to maintain this uh, this dispute under control by all sides. Uh, that is something that is not necessarily very easy to do, but at least the desire is there. Um, as China becomes more bellicose and as it sends its ships out there and as there's U.S., uh, increasingly the U.S. is demonstrating that it's it's not respecting China's claims of how international laws work, works, especially in, in the South China Sea, uh, that's danger of miscalculation could escalate in the future. Uh, but unless we see something dramatic, such as a Taiwanese move towards declaring, declaring independence outright, then I think both sides will continue to recognize that active hostilities against each other are not on their interests, and not in their interests, and will try to maintain that possibility of, uh, of miscalculation or escalation. Okay, well, Omar, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and, and sharing your thoughts on this. Thank you for having me. And now for part two of this episode. 
We're very excited to be celebrating Stratfor's 20th anniversary in 2016. The world is a pretty different place today than it was in 1996, and with this segment, we're launching what will be an occasional series on the theme, 20 Ways the World Has Changed in 20 Years. We're eager to have our listeners and subscribers contribute to this conversation, which we'll be touching on periodically throughout the year. Let us know about the key trends and developments that have changed the way you live and respond to global events with your emails or comments on social media. Don't forget, those contact points are stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback, either through Twitter, where our handle is at Stratfor, or alternatively on Facebook. We're kicking off this first discussion with Stratfor security expert Fred Burton and his thoughts on one of the biggest megatrends of the past two decades, which is obviously terrorism. And there are at least five significant ways the world has changed on that front, aren't there? Without a doubt. And I'm actually dating myself a little bit. I was actually at Stratfor when the 9-11 attacks happened, and I very vividly remember exactly what that day was like, as so many Americans do. But I would submit that the 9-11 attacks themselves were probably one of those five ways, just in the terms of the the vast difference in our global consciousness and the way that we think and react to situations in our daily lives. I think so, Marla. I hearken back to the days when uh, I was a counterterrorism agent and uh, you were hard-pressed to get anybody in the government to deal with any kind of disaster that predominantly occurred overseas, whether that would be uh, the bombing of a U.S. embassy or aircraft hijacking or an assassination of a diplomat uh, or a missionary in some far-off land. And it would literally have two or three lines in the major newspapers, and that was it. But again, that was before the days of the Internet and social media and the 24 by 7 news cycle. But with the strike on the U.S. soil, that caused uh, a seismic shift uh, in, uh, to your point, consciousness, but also a transformation for the counterterrorism community in that we realized that we were so far behind and how could this kind of strategic strike occur on U.S. soil? And literally the event... uh, raised the awareness and resonated throughout the entire world. And and I don't think anything has uh, been a larger shift in uh, uh, global consciousness uh, in, in the past 20 years. Well, I, I would tend to agree with you. And I remember looking at the news that day. And of course, only in the most dire emergencies at that point would you see a news broadcast actually running a ticker across the bottom at any point in time. And the fact that from that day, it pretty much became a standard for any news broadcaster on any issue. I mean, it's changed the lower third of the screen significantly because now everyone broadcasts all the time. Just coming from a journalism background, that was something that a minor issue, of course, but striking to me in terms of how uh, my own career field was changing at that time. And if you look uh, from how the counterterrorism community grew, uh, I can remember when there was only three of us uh, covering the world when I was a special agent in the Uh, early 1980s, and uh, now you look at the proliferation of DHS fusion centers and uh, joint terrorism task forces and your national counterterrorism center and all the different uh, nation states with their international cooperation. So on a positive angle, when you look at that in context, uh, I do think uh, that uh, 9-11 changed how terrorism information is not only perceived, but uh, fused, analyzed, looked at, and disseminated globally. Yeah, Fred, I think you raise a really good point there. The level we've seen in in, in governments, militaries, uh, the security apparatus of the state, the level of actual coordination and spending and simply the growth in these sectors after 9-11 has been really unprecedented. And it's really taught us lessons about uh, not only the, the coordination of assets and the way that departments interoperate, but also it's expanded the way we think about intelligence collection, not only overseas, but also domestically. And I'm sure that's had a huge impact uh, in the way that the, the pr- practitioners actually care about their business. Without a doubt, Ben, and you raise a very good point. I think the uh, the rise of, uh, of what some have called the Big Brother surveillance uh, state or or platforms with uh, facial recognition software, uh, surveillance cameras, uh, the social media captures, uh, encrypted technology and phones. Uh, it, it has spun off uh, a whole technology phenomena that 
uh, I, I've never seen in my lifetime uh, to the point where you have nation states that literally control the entire cyberspace and uh, anything that's being transmitted uh, in an electronic format is being picked up. Now, of course, uh, I think the, the double-edged sword is, uh, and we experience that even here at Stratfor, your, your information overload, where uh, how do you make sense of uh, the, the haystacks when you're um, collecting so much information? And I, I think that that's the next challenge uh, when you look at that from a surveillance perspective is uh, when you're collecting so much information, how do you separate uh, what's important from what's not important? Right. And, you know, it's interesting that when you mentioned this, things like facial recognition, I remember back in the in the late 1990s, biometric technology, I mean, it was in a, in a commercialization phase at that point, but it was not widely known or practiced. I mean, nobody at that time was using their thumbprint to sign on to their iPad. And, oh, by the way, what the hell was an iPad anyway, right? Right, so, right. Do you think that because of the security fears and uh, the terrorism age, for, for lack of a better word, that perhaps that drove the commercialization of those technology types and, and the, the very pinpoint accuracy of knowing who a person is if you have their biometric signature? Do you think that that was driven and, and to a faster rate of adoption because of 9-11? Without a doubt, I think uh, 9-11 caused that uh, paradigm shift uh, to the point uh, where uh, this kind of technology was required. Uh, I can remember going back to the uh, Atlanta Olympics where uh, everything was going fine until we had the bombing at Centennial Park, but uh, we beta tested um, hand recognition technology in order to get into the Olympic Village uh, for those of us that were there uh, protecting the Olympic athletes. And you're thinking at uh, how far we've come since that. But uh, when you start looking at this from a a pure tactical perspective, proving uh, who you are, proving identity is is critical because uh, you're trying to determine uh, who is that potential suicide bomber uh, or top 10 fugitive uh, or individual that could be circumventing a border. And then you look at the challenges, like, for example, with this kind of technology, uh, implementing it on, let's say, for example, uh, the huge immigration and refugee uh, waves that we're seeing throughout Europe. You know, how do you determine that that person in front of you is not uh, uh, a member of Ansar al-Sharia or uh, al-Shabaab? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that, that we've seen now, certainly most modern passports do have a biometric chip on them, and that's made it a lot harder to counterfeit. But the problem you've got, especially when you look at migrant flows and people fleeing war zones or claiming uh, refugee or displaced person status, is that they don't have that biometric data always captured, often they'll have limited paperwork and documentation. And as we see, it makes it very easy for uh, potential terrorists to slip into that flow and exploit it for their own means. So certainly, uh, as advanced as we've come in terms of biometric data capture, it's by no means this panacea that will somehow be able to uh, eradicate uh, terrorism once and for all, especially movement across borders. Very good point, Ben. And I, I think that that's the kind of challenge, not only the data management of that kind of information as well, uh, and, and rapid uh, uh, identification capabilities is the other aspect of, uh, you know, how do you rapidly uh, screen that uh, transportation uh, uh, flow venue, whether it be uh, an airport such as JFK New York or London Heathrow or or Frankfurt um, with all the international travelers uh, and to rapidly collate uh, potential suspects to uh, various watch lists from TSA to uh, Interpol and Europol uh, into who might be a, a potential terrorist suspect. We're talking quite a bit about surveillance technologies, but there's another aspect to that, which is ISR in general, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And on that front, drones particularly have been, you know, quite an interesting development in the last few decades. When you look at uh, the drones that have proliferated uh, since uh, the 9-11 event, uh, I look at that as uh, something that even I couldn't have imagined uh, back as an agent sitting in our office in Washington, the ability to to uh, utilize that kind of uh, surveillance platform uh, in that kind of observation or, or tactical kind of capability. 
it, it's something that uh, if you think about it uh, in uh, in a developmental stage is is really remarkable. Uh, I can recall days when we would have satellite imageries and you were lucky to get it every 24 hours and uh, the thought of uh, ever getting any kind of real-time kind of feeds were something that uh, you might have imagined as a kid in a uh, George Jetson kind of scenario, but uh, on a practical application, uh, the ability to, to call up that kind of surveillance platform to either uh, look at a potential uh, target for either a targeted assassination or as just a observation post to help you protect individuals in a high threat environment. So uh, that's really rem- remarkable phenomena. I also think that it's uh, an interesting dynamic in the espionage field too, Marla uh, and Ben, in that uh, when you think of this in context of how difficult it is for intelligence agencies to go about uh, meeting a basic informant where you have to worry about drones and eyes in the sky that are actually following not only what you would perceive to be friendly intelligence officers, but also sources and and what's being captured. So uh, think of it in context of, you know, how do you go about uh, conducting a surveillance detection route if you're going to meet an informant in Washington, D.C., but you're worried about who might be watching that meet take place. So are you thinking about going down into the subway where the, that's always uh, being monitored anyway with cameras? So where are you going to go today where there's no cameras that are potentially watching you, either on the street or from the air? As we've talked about this drone proliferation, it's not just the, the big systems, you know, the, the big ticket items like uh, Reaper, Hermes 450, you know, those sort of very capable, very big drones that require a pilot to fly. It's the actual proliferation of them, the much smaller types. And like you say, it's basically a lot of times a flying camera that you can operate with your phone. And that makes the possibility for remote surveillance, you know, so um, you can distribute it so widely. The implications are, are huge for that. And in the executive protection field, whether you're protecting a, uh, a governor of a state uh, or an internationally protected person or a head of state, one of the things you're always worried about is that kind of surveillance technology or uh, getting enough explosives, for example, onto a drone where you could actually fly that into an aircraft on a tarmac or bring it onto a uh, speech in an outdoor kind of forum. And then you start thinking about countermeasures as to what countermeasures can be developed to help you either identify and look for those drones uh, as they get smaller and smaller as the technology develops. And then you think in context to uh, the protection of CEOs uh, or corporate boardrooms uh, or high-profile personalities or or Hollywood movie stars with paparazzi. I mean, the the, the endless use of these from a surveillance plats, platform uh, is really somewhat uh, uh, remarkable and certainly one of the key developments uh, since 9-11. It's fascinating to me when I really think about that aspect of it versus on a more macro level. You know, the sanitization of war, a lot of the drone technology was driven by the fact that we weren't fighting an army. We weren't fighting a nation state. We were fighting a small group of individuals in an asymmetric threat and the the need to pinpoint individual actors in a battle space as opposed to an army. It's not the same kind of warfare. And the impacts on the fighters themselves are different. It's it's not that there's no impact, but that psychological distance is meaningful in some ways. Yeah, and that was one of the ways in which drones really came into their own was the sense that you could have a remotely controlled uh, vehicle airborne vehicle which had an extremely long loiter time that had a uh, a very good ISR and you know an offensive capability as well through a Hellfire missile and actually you could use these things in non-permissive environments because if you did lose the drone there wasn't a crew associated with it and actually you know having that ability to to project force in that manner uh, and potentially an expendable way even though they are very expensive really sort of changed the way we thought about things you know um, drones are now a common sight in the skies above parts of Pakistan and definitely Afghanistan and many other places in the world. So they're definitely uh, a feature of the battlefield that's not going away anytime soon. And, you know, Fred, as you put your list together, you mentioned a couple of other things that I think were quite possibly not al-Qaeda's intention in terms of uh, after effects that, uh, that the attacks would have on the American public or in the fields of science and technology. What are some of those others? Well, I think uh, the big takeaway from 9-11, if, if you step back and look at it in my perspective, is just the, uh, 
safer commercial passenger air travel today. Uh, I can recall a time frame in the uh, 80s where we had the horrific uh, hijackings and bombings and crash of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, where many of my colleagues were lost on that air flight. And we had limited technology to screen bags, and uh, we were dealing with uh, a range of uh, bombers that uh, and hijackers that were always one step ahead of us and trying to get the global cooperation. That first began uh, after the uh, bombing of Pan Am 103 in Lockerbie. So that was the first shift in that uh, safer passenger air travel where we made it a requirement that uh, uh, bags going into a aircraft hold be actually screened for bombs. Uh, you can imagine today that... Uh, uh, the heyday the terrorists would have uh, if they uh, if they weren't screened. So that was the first uh, uh, I think shift uh, that I saw and, and directly experienced. And then when you look at nine uh, eleven, the uh, technology enhancements uh, or the holistic screening of passengers and shared uh, passenger manifests and just the international screening. Uh, that's one of the things that I think uh, has been an extraordinarily positive development since 9-11, that uh, as miserable it, as it may be to fly today, Marla and Ben, uh, you are safer flying today. Uh, as dreadful as it is moving through all these different screening lines and being interrogated and uh, asking you know, to take your shoes off and, and um, being interviewed, uh, we're all better for that uh, as flying public. And uh, I don't think that's ever going to turn back, um, I'm sad to say, uh, because of uh, the kind of threat that we face. And at the end of the day, terrorist groups uh, have always remained fixated on passenger air, and uh, that threat's not going to dissipate. Heaven forbid that you should actually be boarding an airline where you don't see the kind of security processes in place that we've grown to complain about so much, right? Exactly. Your fifth trend on this list I, I find greatly interesting, and um, that has a lot to do with the field of medicine and, and some of the things that we've seen changing as a result of the wars in specifically Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. Yeah, this, uh, this point, uh, my last point on, on this, Marla, comes primarily out of conversations I've had with uh, various uh, trauma doctors and, and colleagues and, and Stratfor readers and subscribers and uh, uh, fire and EMS personnel and looking at some of these mass casualty attacks that have occurred, such as San Bernardino. And it's amazing to me the transition of uh, battlefield doctors and nurses and medics uh, into the various uh, health services around the, the globe. And uh, to a man or woman, they all say that uh, uh, some of the lessons they've learned in, in battlefield medicine and triage has has helped them uh, do a better job in in dealing with uh, emergency or critical care in, in um, uh, the hospitals and emergency rooms and and uh, also transitioning those kinds of skill sets into uh, new medical technologies that are being developed into to how to stop, for example, how to stop bleeding quickly and uh, rapid care and critical triage and so forth. So. Uh, I think if you look at the history of, uh, and I'm an old EMT from uh, back in the day, um, you, when you look at the transition of, of that uh, from picking up that patient on the street, uh, chances are that that medic that's treating that patient has uh, been in uh, on the battlefield. And then when you bring that person into the hospital, uh, there's a high probability that the, the trauma surgeon uh, has been on the battlefield uh, uh, where uh, he or she has seen everything unfold. So uh, there is a benefit uh, uh, to that that uh, I think has really been remarkable. I would agree. And as you know personally, Fred, I actually live in San Antonio where we have a very large community of veterans. And I've been fortunate to spend time at Fort Sam Houston and the Center for the Intrepid and see some of the incredible work that's being done there with uh, trauma surgery, with prosthetics. And even with burn surgery, and again, this is one of the unintended effects from the Al-Qaeda perspective, a lot of that had to do with IEDs being used by right. terrorists and insurgents in the battlefield and the kinds of injuries that they were inflicting. The, the advancements from the medical technology perspective, I think, to assist uh, has also been remarkable, too. Uh, but to me, I'm more uh, intrigued and, and fascinated by uh, uh, 
just the sheer volume of uh, critical care personnel, nurses, doctors, paramedics, EMTs that uh, have learned uh, the hard way and the hard lessons from uh, uh, the Ramadis of the world and time in uh, Afghanistan and deploying those tactics back here in the United States and around Europe, for example, uh, to uh, help uh, patients. And uh, I think that's a very positive thing. Yeah, I have to agree with you there, Fred, because that's one thing you have to consider from the most recent experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a huge amount of of trauma experience that gets trickled back into society. And for a while, Afghanistan was the place to be if you were involved in any kind of like, if you had a traumatic injury, be it a gunshot or you're exposed to an explosion, simply because that was where the best trauma care in the world was. And we saw this evolution of wounds that were survivable. Um, which was literally year on year, so that there was a wound that might have killed you the year before but was now survivable because of the speed with which you could get back to a um, to a trauma center and the level of expertise that you would you know get once you'd gotten there. And just seeing the evolution of you know individual first aid kits, the, the, the things that the blokes were carrying into into battle, um, you know, over the period of ten years, it, it was a quantum leap forward in terms of actually you know having things like tourniquets and lots of things to, to do with hemostasis, having quick clots or cellox dressings, having you know in terms of pain relief, um, you know, multiple things that you could really use to keep an individual alive. And like Marla said, the proliferation of IEDs had a real big impact because we started to see more and more catastrophic amputations. You know, occasionally people were losing one, two, three, in the worst case, four limbs. And on top of the trauma that's already inflicted on the body, it's a huge amount of uh, of just simply, you know, fluids to lose as well. And keeping somebody in that state alive um, is an incredible feat. But then you've got the aftermath of the recovery. And again, the sort of the, the growth field in military prosthetics now is huge as a result. And it's really been an amazing handful of years on that front to see the research coming to fruition and, and the lives that are being changed as a result. We've been at war a long time. Well, Fred, thank you so much for helping us kick off this series with your perspectives. Um, always appreciate it, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Before we leave you today, there's just one minor housekeeping item we'd like to take care of, which is that those of you who listened to last month's podcast uh, were invited to send us an email and ask for John Sather's list of recommended reading for 2016. And we had a tremendous response to that, which thank you very much for those emails. Just a handful of you may still be waiting to get that list. And the reason for that is you didn't send me your email address. So I'm looking for you. But if you haven't received your list yet, just drop us another line through stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback and you should be able to make sure that your email address is entered so uh, just come back around to us on that and we'll get it right out to you and as always thank you again for your time for listening and uh, send us your comments and suggestions at that same address stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback or on facebook or twitter where we're at stratfor Well, that's all we have time for for this month. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Look forward to next month's podcast. And please, if you want to read any more about the stuff we do, check out stratford.com.